0: From WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. One of the major local institutions that we haven't talked about yet on this program is our libraries. They are, in so many ways, the backbone of this country. No matter where you live, no matter how big or tiny your city, town, village, or hamlet is, there's a solid chance that there is a public library serving your community. And this is a particularly relevant topic for us here in New York because New York State happens to have the most public libraries out of any state in the U.S., with 756 unique public library entities established under state law. And with 932 towns in New York State, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that is .81 public libraries per town. And I should say that this statistic is from 2012. So today's count might be plus or minus a few libraries, but these library districts don't tend to change too much. In second place is Illinois, with 622 public libraries, and in third place is Texas, with 551 public libraries. Overall, there are almost 10,000 public libraries in the United States, and nearly 100,000 school libraries. And, by the way, New York also has more books in its public libraries than any other state, with over 70 million titles available. California is a close second with 68 million titles, even though California's population is more than twice that of New York's. So we also have the most books per capita, in case you've been wondering. Now, many public libraries exist within library systems that encompass a bunch of libraries in a specific geographical area. Here in Sullivan County, we fall under RCLS, the Remipo-Catskill Library System, which includes 47 libraries across four counties under its umbrella. I was curious about what exactly the purpose of RCLS is, So the other day, I met up with RCLS Executive Director, Grace Riario, to learn more.
1: So New York happens to have 23 library systems. There is three library systems that are also um, libraries, which is the Brooklyn Public Library, the New York Library, and the Queens. They are three systems, but they're also public libraries. So they have a big branch, and then they have little branches across the city. Then it's us. We're called the Co- cooperative library system, which is a whole bunch of libraries, independent libraries, got together and say we want to save money. So the primary reason for having a system is to save money. Why? Because if you want to have a catalog, and every single library will have to pay for their catalog individually, it will cost probably one or 2.2 million dollars. But because we have it together, it costs about 100, between 150,000 to 200,000 depending on how big your catalog you want it to be. So that's why. because together we're stronger when it comes to purchasing power. The other piece is the delivery, right? We want to be able to share resources. If you're one little library, you can buy maybe 100 books, maybe 150 books. But if you put 47 libraries together, you can buy about 3.2 million books. And wow. then you can share from each other, right? And the same thing is becomes with e-content, now the e-books. Do you know, you can get a free ebook, but a free book costs about 100 bucks but one little library can only buy 10 and another little library can buy 10 and another little library. So you have 30 books right now and you all can share those books. So that's the purpose of a system. Of a system is really to share our resources and to spend public money effectively because every single library cannot afford all the resources that together we can afford. And that's why I said together we're stronger.
0: So all these smaller libraries are able to share books and movies and audiobooks between them, but how do those logistics actually work between each of those libraries?
1: Remember when I said about the catalog? Yeah. So when we talk about a catalog, you can see all the books of all 47 libraries have. So if Livingston Manor doesn't have uh, the biography that you want, then the librarian will look in the catalog and say, oh, but Mama KM has that book, or Orangeburg has that book. Oh, wait, there's two copies in Valley Cottage. So they put it on hold, which means you make a request through the catalog. And that request goes to Valley Cottage, and Valley Cottage goes, oh, of course, here's the book. How does the book get all the way from Valley Cottage of Rockland County to all the way in Leamingston, all the way up in Sullivan? Is us. So we, the system, have a delivery. So it works exactly like... Amazon.com or um, UPS or your uh, post office. It's like ordering a book. So, Valley says, yes, I want you to have this book. So, we pick up the book from Valley Library. We drive all the way up to Sullivan, and we deliver the book to that other library. And the same thing happens the other way. So, you will say, well, wow, now I have to drive all the way to Valley to return a book. No, you don't. You just go back to B- Livingston. In Solomon, and you return that book, and that book goes back again to the Ballycatis Library via us. So, because we, as I said to you, we search, we share our resources, we share the catalog, and we share the delivery. So, we only need one set system of delivery and one set system of cataloging so we can all talk to each other and connect with each other. And not only that, we can pretty much get you any book in the whole entire United States. Because there's another delivery system that we also uh, have that if you see a, a book in California, we can probably get it for you. It will take a couple of weeks, but I'm sure we can get it for you. And if wow, you happen to that. be, yeah, and if you are um if you're looking for a book in the New York, uh the New York Public Library, we probably can get it for you. If you see something in the state library, we can get it for you. If you see anything in any of the universities across the New York state, we can probably borrow the book from you. And if you're looking for an article of anything, sometimes the students go into their databases at school and they see, oh, I would love to have this article, but it's not full print. And my school doesn't have it in full print. If you call a public library, they probably can get it for you.
0: You mentioned Amazon a minute ago. And Amazon, of course, started out as an online bookseller curious how the Amazons of the world have affected local libraries and has that really been felt in the last decade or so?
1: I will tell you no because uh, we're still people pay taxes um, to use the library and you pay certain amount of taxes but the amount of Investment you put in the library that you get back is significant. For example, if you have a family Mm -hmm. of two children, right, and every child takes out um, two books every single day, that's 20 books a week. If you have to pay those books on Amazon, you will not be able to afford it. I don't know any middle-class family that could buy 20 books in one week through Amazon, even if the books are $2 or $3. Because any of the books that you that are little merit and that you kids want is probably going to have a minimum price of $7, $8. Multiply that by 20, you cannot afford it. So libraries are still very, very crucial when it comes to middle-class and, and poor families and even some above middle-class. When Amazon came out with e-content and they came out with the e-readers, they were fantastic at marketing those things. They were f- brilliant and people bought them. Problem is nobody knew how to use them. So guess who mm-hmm. helped all those folks in January right after Christmas <laughs> to use them? That was a librarian. That was a, somebody that worked in the library, took the time, couple hours to show you how your new toy worked.
0: I know libraries have started using things like Libby, right? Which is, mm-hmm. I think actually you're probably the best person to talk about what Libby is. Well, I use it on, on my phone all the time, but I. Libby is
1: an app. Familiar with
0: it,
1: yeah, Libby is an app that helps folks download ebooks, uh, read e magazines, um, get audiobooks for free. So we collectively, as I said to you, have put together our funding. And spend some money, and we buy all this, all this content for you folks, for you the public. So the only thing you need to do is you need to have a device, whatever devices you like, and you download the app. You type in your library card one time, and after that you can download as many books, or audiobooks, as you like. And we have now three, almost three thousand that you can choose from. So and all that is is free to you if you invest in your library once a year through your taxes.
0: Does it seem like people are weaning off of in-print books that you would take out of the library in a more standard way and using something like Libby more often? Is that is there kind of a switch that you're seeing happening?
1: No, I don't think so. I think there are different users. I think um I think we have had a significant increase on e-content users, yes like by 300% actually and maybe it was because our libraries were closed and they couldn't get books but the moment curbside the moment libraries were able to give curbside services to the to the folks oh no that 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 forget livy it was both i think people like to have both especially i will say The older generation likes uh, books and the younger generation, like teenagers, for example, there has been a lot of studies, a lot of Pew studies that said that they still like the the smell and the touch of a book, which was fascinating to me. But based on the statistics, I can tell you that e-content is very popular. Downloading books and e-audio is very popular. But checking out books is as popular as it was before. It hasn't changed.
0: It's exciting that the study from Pew has suggested that there are a lot of teenagers who like to pick up a book physically and read that, but is that what it's really looking like on the ground or is it more like really the bulk of the in print paper books that are going out is that mostly really coming from older people and 20 30 years from now as old people die and you know younger people turn into middle-aged people and whatnot, are libraries, in your mind, going to have to adapt a lot more and change the kinds of services and selections that they're offering again, as maybe people are less interested in paper books?
1: Well, that is a good conclusion. I mean, as I said to you, we are in the people business. So if people tell us to go one way, that's the way we're going. But I will say to you that, you know, before I became a director of of the system, I I used to work with teenagers and I don't like to put um, kids in in one box. They're very different. I think that there's always going to be young people that like the book and and not so much the book as in written. Uh, So I'm not talking about just books that are stories. Right, because I I met a lot of young men and and women in my time as a teen librarian that hated English, completely, Mm. absolutely hated it. They will not be sitting and reading um, (laughs) Faulkner or Shakespeare or Jane R. No matter how cool you think that book is, they will not (laughs) be sitting reading for you. But if you provide them with a graphic novel, oh my God, I had a young man that will sit in the library for hours reading graphic novels and they will go through 15, 20 in in hours and they will come and say, what else do you have? So it's different. um, There's also a lot of books when it comes to mechanics, when it comes to computers, when it comes to technical things that people want to know about. So it's... Again, it's just about how they f- they want to have the information in front of them. Do I agree with you? I think if 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 our community say to us, A, um, I, I think we want to have the information done via e-content, then we are going to put more funding into e-content. But if there is still folks that still want to print, that's where we're going. But in the publishing world, yes, print materials have Decrease significantly. I do agree with that.
0: So let's say 30 years from now, 80% or even more of library users are demanding e-content instead of physical books. I'm curious what the library space would end up looking like, right? I mean, when you walk into a library today, Almost all libraries I've ever been to in the United States have the same basic setup where most of that physical space in the library is dedicated to housing books. I mean, there's other stuff as well, like audiobooks, movies, and whatnot. But even as DVDs are kind of being phased out and people are using different streaming services, lacking a, a demand years from now for much of the stuff that's currently taking up the physical library space, what does that physical library space end up looking like? It it seems like there's there's suddenly a a lot of different options for how a library would even look.
1: I agree. And again, it comes to the people, right? Like right now, I can tell you there is a number of libraries that have had new buildings done Mm -hmm. in the past five years. And if you look at those buildings, a lot of their books – Are less and a lot of their community space is bigger why because we're people right we're in the people business what do people want they want to be together even though all the social media and this twitter and all that good stuff looking at somebody eye to eye and having a, a good talk with somebody and being together as humans that has never ended and that will never end I don't care how many people say, oh, I have 6,000 friends on Facebook. Yeah, you don't. You have three and you hang out with them. <laughs> so it's it's that piece never going, never going to end. We are social creatures and we like to be together. And I think the more people go to do their business online, that connection with one another is going to become more and more sick. I think people are going to seek out places they can be together. And I'm sorry to say, libraries continue to be the only place, and this is the part that I'm sorry, that people feel safe Mm -hmm. being themselves, being who they are. Because we don't ask what religion you believe, what Political side you're in, what type of books you like, what what are your uh, sexual ideas or not sexual ideas? We really don't care. We sort of like here's the place. Uh, let us know what you would like to do with it, and we will figure it out how to help you.
0: I love that idea of libraries not just being a center for access to third party information, but mechanisms to bring people together. That said. I'm curious what the last year and a half has been like for RCLS because we couldn't be together for the most part.
1: Actually, I disagree with you. We were very much together. (laughs) Zoom will tell you that. (laughs) Uh, People where um, I think uh, I will say to you that the libraries um, use phones and, and Zoom the most to reach out people because we were not in the same room together, able to touch each other does not mean that we did not touch people, right? I can say to you for security that at least 60% of my libraries call all their patrons. they used to come to the library every day. Like we all have those folks. We all those have those folks that, oh yeah, Mr., Smith comes in on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. He has he has to have to his paper at ten o'clock in the morning. We have Mr. Uh, Suarez that needs to sit in computer eight, otherwise, he gets upset. We have um, the woman that comes in to see her puzzle on Saturday morning. She's there at nine a.m. when we open, and you better have the puzzle there. So we all have those folks, and you think that the. The woman that comes in at 9 a.m. wants her parcel? No, she wants to see her librarian. She wants to have that connection with that person because you may, not be, you may be the only person she talks to the whole week. So that connection has no stop. I, we call other people on the phone just to see how they're doing. Hey, you know, I'm sorry we're closed, but how are you? What's going on? How are the grandkids? What do you need? Um I saw a lot of libraries um, having uh, Facebook live events so people can connect with their librarians. I saw a lot of folks doing book discussions in Zoom, trying to get them to download the books and talk to them. We did a lot of um, curve size services, like I said, with kids. We had crafts uh, put in a, in a little plastic bag that they can take it home and then they will do the craft with the librarian via Zoom. So even though we couldn't touch each other, we were there. I mean, we were touching people across a screen and across a phone throughout the entire pandemic. There were so many parents that, you know, the school is a school and it's very um, structural, right? But once the school was done, what then? And having kids in the, in the, in the house... Uh, especially little ones, I'm sure it was extremely difficult for parents. So having some other activity they can count on was very helpful for their mental health and for their children's mental health.
0: There have been a lot of industries as a result of the pandemic that have implemented changes, first out of necessity due to the pandemic, but now a lot of those changes have reshaped industries. One of the big ones that comes to mind is remote work where a lot of companies who previously required people to come into the office full-time are saying, you know, we have learned now that a lot of people were working from home this whole time. Our productivity hasn't really slowed. So we're going to let people work from home when they want, come to the office when they want and things like that. Have there been any changes to the way libraries work that resulted from the pandemic that libraries are now going to be implementing as a result of the last year and a half going forward, because they've figured out new systems for things and new ways to serve people.
1: I think I can tell you the story time piece. I think it's going to continue. I think programs online are going to continue. Hmm. I don't think they're going to stop having Facebook live or, um, you know, book discussions online or having um, some type of yoga program or something online. I don't see that changing because we, you know, you reach more people out. People are still not comfortable going out. So I think libraries are reacting to that. With regards to working from home, I think some staff will be able to work from home because you are not possible for you to be in a desk as well as providing services via a computer, right? You can't do both. So I think Some staff will be working from home some hours and still be at the library some hours. But we are a people business job. So we need to be at the building in order to work with them. And not only at the building, in the community, really. So a lot of libraries are going back to community events. And a lot of libraries are doing things outside the building. So people feel more comfortable being together. So that I don't think is going to change. I think the outside activities are going to increase. Um, Things that we can offer people that are not just in the building itself is going to increase. I think we used to do that before, but now it's going to be a lot more than ever.
0: I think that a major root of my own interest in libraries is that I've been around them my whole life. My mom is a librarian. And I didn't initially intend to feature her in this episode, but we were sitting around her kitchen table a few weeks ago, and she started talking about what it's been like being on the ground running a local library during this last year and a half of global uncertainty and I realized that her perspective as one of 756 public library directors in New York State might be worth sharing here. I had to pare down the hour and 45-minute call we recorded the other day for the program, but even before getting to COVID, I wanted to start out by asking about what she's learned through her experience working for a handful of different libraries over the years, and how local libraries can differ from one another based on their communities.
2: My name is Peggy Johanson. Very similar to your name. Amazingly <laughs> similar. And I am the director of the Mount Kading Library of Wortsboro, New York.
0: To the needs of different libraries, even within the same general locale, like the same county, or the same region look different from one another pretty significantly based on the communities that you're serving?
2: Yeah, it's so interesting how even within solving County, the communities differ. And of course, it's a generalization, but you, you have to do some generalizing when you're trying to serve a population, for instance, ours is about 10,000. And it like com- compare that to the community of Livingston Manor where I used to work. It's a smaller community, only a few thousand. But, you know, like when I'm trying to develop programs and select items for our collections, I have the direct community in mind. And there's some overlap for sure. But for whatever reason, you know, based on the families that originally settled there, the people who migrated into the community, the recreation in the area. Um, For instance, you know, Wordsboro sits on the Baxik Hill compared to Livingston is just at the very beginning of the Catskill Park and people come here for mountain type recreation. Um, There's fishing in both areas, but it's a different kind of fishing. There's, you know, fly fishing in the beautiful streams in Livingston Manor, and people go out on their boats on the wetland of the Bashakill. You know, I think of even Monticello compared to Wurtzboro or compared to Liberty. It ha- has a lot to do with the um, way that people can make a living in any given community. One thing, and this might might be common across many of the towns, but we have a large population of retirees in, in Mount Caning. And we also have a large population of young families with children below school age. So we're finding that we can offer firms directed to those two age groups, and we generally find an audience. Mm. So technology support is very important, and traditionally that's been a need of seniors, although I find that with the requirement of, for instance, government documents that people have to fill out, job-related documents, any kind of social services or healthcare care benefit documents, it, it's all online. And so people of all ages really struggle with that and they may feel some comfortability with technology but then they'll hit a snag and they get very frustrated and so we can provide support there people are so appreciative of that and even just providing access to the internet for some people that's essential because they they can't get that at their home for whatever reason
0: as a librarian how much of a social services expert do you need to be do you really need to know the tax forms, the full range of government services that people need to access. I mean, to what extent do you kind of need to be an expert on all of that?
2: That's a really good question because there's so many different programs out there and I would like to, and and I sort of aim to have somebody on the staff uh, familiar with at least how to access the website where the various um, popular documents are found or or applications. Emergency broadband benefits and rental assistance right now are programs that the government is making available to individuals, so we have information available. At least I have a a general knowledge of how to go through the process of how to apply for that. Um, HEAP and SNAP are popular programs in the county for Food assistance and heating and cooling assistance. And so I'd like to have somebody each year on the staff who's trained in how to apply for that. And we have paper documents. And so, you know, another service that's very popular is just our faxing because so many documents, once they're completed, have to be faxed in. And often um, doctors and health insurance. Uh, companies are re- required documents to be faxed in. We are faxing for people. All I've heard, I've heard people say, faxing still exists.
0: Yeah, I'm actually very day. surprised at that.
2: Oh yeah, you know, all the time people have to send photos of their driver's license, of their heating bills, their electric bills, or or just their, you know, medical documents. Yep. We had a gentleman who's primary language is Chinese, Hmm. and he um, needed to get his unemployment benefit. And so he had difficulty with the technology side and with the language side. Besides just the general complication of whatever his situation is that that anybody would have had in, in loss of work and then trying to fill out the document in the way it's supposed to be done. So we worked with him, and we worked with him, and we worked with him. We helped him make phone calls. We helped with translation when he was on the phone. We we helped him understand the emails he was getting in response to the forms we were helping him fill out. This probably went on over the course of two weeks. I want to say everybody on our five-person staff worked with him at one time or another. He was so grateful. And and we all felt really good about being able to help him so that in the end, he was successfully receiving his benefits.
0: Mm. On another topic, before we started recording this conversation, we were talking about maybe doing a conversation like this recorded last week. And I said that I kind of wanted to ask about what running your library has been like during covid you kind of had got this very kind of exasperated look on your face. And I think it said a lot about what it's been like for the last year and a half, trying to make this work, particularly with the backdrop of a library's mission being to serve so many different needs of the community. And so I'm curious what that's kind of looked like for you.
2: Well, the kind of silver lining of the pandemic was that we very much learned that the library is more than the building, which we knew anyway, but, you know, it was a very (laughs) firm lesson. So we made the kind of transition that everybody had to make to serve the public remotely. And then once we were able to get back together in a limited fashion to be able to serve people primarily outdoors, so bringing materials out to people and cars on the sidewalk and holding programs outside, which we're still trying to do. But to be able to have the public come back into the building, I maybe that's why I was making that like frustrated and then relieved kind of look because what a pleasure. People are so happy to come mm-hmm. back in and, and to see the employees that they're used to having help them out face to face, even though we're all wearing masks. (laughs) And to be able to use the computers and browse the collection, you know, without just having to select things online. And to see their neighbors and friends, to run into people they haven't talked to in so long. And that was really a happy
0: time. When everything shut down, I I can't even imagine what the conversation with your staff and then the broader conversation with the patrons of your library. What did that look like, and what was the learning curve like of really operating a library outside of a library?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it was all about communication. So we had to really ramp up what we were doing in that area in terms of turning our newsletter into something more frequent and something more pertinent. I mean, we weren't doing. Um, in-person programming. We were still offering some remote programming for different ages, but um, not only communicating information about the pandemic, but also calling people who were our regular patrons that we knew were alone during that time, just to say, how are you doing? And then the other thing was that we really pulled together as a, as the RCLS system because for the first time we were sharing, maybe not the first time, but the first time I've experienced sharing of programs among the different libraries. So somebody might say, I'm offering a, a concert of a certain type remotely. And if you want to share the fee for the performers, We can both promote this. We can accommodate a hundred people on our Zoom license. So why not do this? So that was pretty cool. And we were able to offer some more expensive programs that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise.
0: As sort of the local center for information of all types at any given local library, are there a lot of people that come to the library with, questions about covid and about regulations and about the disease and any other number of things related to this virus and have you kind of had to do a crash course in public health knowledge i mean just as your son i know that you don't have a degree in public health and i imagine that (laughs) your other library clerks and other people that are working there probably don't have strong backgrounds in medicine or public health and whatnot so what has that been like if that is the case that people are coming for information about covid to kind of spin up
2: interestingly from the very beginning we anticipated getting a lot of those kinds of questions and we really didn't i think that people were picking up that information in many different ways and didn't really feel the need to come in and ask. And then in general, the reference section in, in libraries is not, in bigger libraries that, that had dedicated reference sections, it's not used like it was pre internet, as you know. A lot of people get their information off the internet. And in, in the beginning of the pandemic, the government, the CDC, the state health department, you know, they were putting out so much information with every channel that they could. We, we did offer a, a Zoom program by a biologist on how the vaccine works and on the biological level and cellular level rather, um, which was really a, a great presentation. I was glad to be able to do that. So whenever I can, we'll either put out paper-based resources or offer programs on information that is relevant to what's going on in the world but yeah i think that was common among the other libraries as well i remember speaking to other directors about that are you getting a lot of questions about what's going on in this pandemic no are you not really We expected <laughs> that but i guess that that wasn't something that wasn't a role that we needed to fill at the time we just had to apply the, the guidelines as far as keeping people safe the way you catch the question is really interesting. You're not an expert in this. Well, I'm not an expert in most things. And so um, the, the role of the of a librarian really is to steer people towards the information, not to be the expert, to steer people towards accurate information. And in, in that area, I think libraries have a big role to play because as you know, there's a lot of inaccurate information available to people.
0: So that said, what would be your three to five biggest tips for all of us on making sure that we are consuming accurate information in our day-to-day lives?
2: Boy, that's a good one. So uh, checking multiple sources, Hmm. checking sources that come with authority. I think that's Commonly understood, but maybe not enough. That if you're getting your information from a website that is provided by a university versus, I don't know, somebody who just happens to belong to an organization that holds a certain viewpoint, the university probably is going to have more accurate information. But check multiple sources. Look for words that indicate that something is an opinion, look for citations or references that show the source of information. If there's no source given at all for, let's say for a quote or for something that's supposed to be a fact, then you should question it. Okay, but where did that come from? And I think it's important too for people, just in our general conversation, as we pass information to one another, to reference where we got that information from. You know, all the time we're saying, oh, I heard this, or I heard that, or I read this. Okay, but where did you read it? And then sometimes you'll hear on the internet, or I Googled it. Well, you can Google something and get information that comes from um, a research-based organization or a um, association of professionals or a university and you can Google and then just read the top hit, which is an advertisement for somebody's book, let's say you're looking at nutritional information, and they just want to sell the latest fad on nutrition.
0: Hmm.
2: So there's Googling and there's Googling and knowing what to look for <laughs> and how to identify the hits that you get when you do do a, a keyword search and, and where they're coming from. and What is the URL? You know, is the, the URL holds a lot of information it can tell you that your source is likely to be factual or a conglomeration of things that somebody else pulled off the web that doesn't necessarily have sources identified.
0: I feel like a lot of the information tidbits that we talk about between each other as, hey, did you hear about this thing? We get from scrolling. I kind of say scrolling in, in quotations, you know, it's when you're just scrolling through your social media feed. Okay. And in that context, it's hard to even pinpoint sources usually because sometimes people just post things or pages just post things on, on social media. And as you're scrolling through your feed, you'll just scroll past like a blurb that says this about whatever. And this happens to me all the time, where I'll read something that happened on my newsfeed. But I don't know when I should go and be triple checking sources and doing a Google search on something I read in my newsfeed versus just kind of accepting it for what it is and and keep going. You know, you can't, There's simply not enough time in the day to go and triple check every single thing you see in your newsfeed.
2: I think that's a really interesting um, perspective that you brought up. It's kind of how quickly people, let's say of your generation or anybody who's getting their news in that fashion, just like a quick scrolling and it's all short headlines.
0: Right. It's essentially just headlines.
2: Yeah. Or maybe it's images. A lot of people, I think, get a lot of their information just from images and maybe a caption. I think there's a real danger to that. I I think that it makes you very susceptible to incorrect impressions, mm. you know, if it's, if it's like information on, on how much the virus is spreading in your area, you definitely want to be accurate about it. So if you see something about that, then you might want to then go to a map that's put out by CDC or something like that. Mm. I think that would be the question. And if if you're quickly seeing all these things coming at you, well, what is really important? What's important to you, and what's important to the
0: world? Are you saying that it kind of comes down to then, to what extent does this information have the capacity to change people's actions? Is that the threshold? Well, that's a
2: really good threshold. I think that's a really important thing. But also it's your understanding of the world. Because if, if your understanding is that, for instance, the virus is kind of relatively benign and it's just not going to affect me in any bad way. And then you come to an encounter in your life where somebody says you have to put on masks mask in order to enter this venue and you've already buried this misunderstanding back there. It just seems to me that developing misunderstandings could play out in unexpected ways later mm-hmm. on. And I would consider that a symptom of a problem just in how we get our news. It's fabulous that we have this huge breadth of information that we can access easily. But I think it's important to go into depth on topics that are really significant, things that matter to mm. how we behave and things that matter to the welfare of our family and our neighbors, our community. But it's time every you know everybody's time is is discreet and it's and it's being pulled in so many different directions. That's the way we live today. It, it's a really good conversation to have because there are so many things pulling at our attention all the time. I certainly am a victim of that.
0: A few days after that conversation with my mom, she called me up and shared a few more thoughts she had on our talk about how we get our information about the world, which is sort of the essence of what libraries are all about. We couldn't line up our schedules so we could record more audio together, but I took some notes and I'll paraphrase what she wanted to add. First is that our world is nuanced. All the big, important stuff happening around us can't be fully encapsulated in tiny sound bites, or in internet memes for that matter. And our libraries are here to help us get a more complete view of the world. And she wanted to add that getting that fuller picture doesn't have to be through dry biographies or seven-hour Ken Burns documentaries. Okay, she didn't mention Ken Burns. That was all me. I love the man's work, but brevity, eh, it's not his thing. Anyway, there is so much juicy, interesting literature out there, much of which can be found in the fiction section, that can expand our worldview in powerful and positive ways. The last point that my mom brought up was that we, as Americans, gained our rights and liberties in large part because our ancestors strived to be well-informed. And it is a well-informed public that preserves democracy here and around the world. And really, the entire basis of democracy revolves around the idea that a citizenry can be trusted to understand the world around them to such an extent that the future of a nation can be placed in their hands through the right to vote. Now that is an incredible amount of confidence that the folks back in 1776 had in you and me today. So it is our duty, both to them and to generations to come, to be well-informed and keep our democracy alive. And maybe make it better, too, while we're at it. So next time you're going past your local library, stop in. You might become a better person and citizen for it. Thank you so much to Peggy Johansson and Grace Riario for lending their thoughts and voices to today's episode. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a production of WJFF Radio Catskill. Have a great week. Thanks, Mom. (laughs)